The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio with me, Claire Musters. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. So today on The Profile, I'm talking to Joe Saxton. Joe is an international speaker, a Bible teacher and a best-selling author who has a passion for discipleship and mission. I spoke to her about the issues that are covered in her new book, The Dream of You, which looks at embracing our God-given identity. You have a podcast with Pastor Steph, Lead Stories, and I believe you actively mentor groups of women. I've seen you do that online sometimes. Um, I'm just wondering what you um, feel the place of mentoring has in um, discipleship and whether you think the church does it well or not um, and why you do your own initiatives. Yeah, I mean, I think I think mentoring is an absolute game changer at the best of times. But I think particularly if you feel called to leadership and particularly if you're a woman, because you don't often see people who are doing what you're doing. And I think when you there's a, a woman here called Marion Wright Edelman, who um, leads I think she leads something called the Children's Defense Fund. And she said she said this line in relation to kids, but applies to women, too. You can't be what you can't see. And I think often if we don't see other examples, living examples of people doing what we feel called to, we're not going to try um, because all the questions, the, the issue of skill is almost down at the bottom of the list compared to how do I make it work? Is it OK? Have I got permission? Will anybody believe me? Is it too arrogant to want it? And all those other questions. I mean, I, I've been mentored by men and women, and I've always found them be quite transformative in terms of me embracing what I was called to do, having the courage to do something about it and being accountable about it as well. So in terms of the groups I mentor and stuff, I didn't feel really particularly strongly about mentoring women until I was here in the States. And I think probably because in the UK there wasn't, at least at the time when I was still living there, there wasn't a kind of women's ministry stuff. I know like colour and that are there now, but there wasn't a women's ministry thing as such. And um, in the environment I was in, I saw men and women leading, but I, it felt so much more pronounced here in the US. And I had a lot of people just ask me, I think maybe I'd got to an age and stage where people were just saying, you know, how did you get to do that? And what did you do? And how did it work? And, and it forced me to think about it and to almost not take for granted the things that I've been given. And I'd always done it one on one. But what I find in groups is that you kind of rise together, you mentor people together and you build a network and almost like a sisterhood of relationships. So I've done lots of initiatives on the side and on not on the choir as such, but just getting on with it and getting on with it ways of trying to gather women leaders together and affirm them and help equip them where possible, invest in them where possible, help build their confidence so that they can be unleashed. Because I get tired of now this is probably rude. Is this rude? Anyway, I get tired of people asking, where are the women? You know, where are the women who are speaking? Where are the women who... And, and I get asked it in both the US and the UK, and there's no reason for either. Just look harder. You know, it's, it's actually not that hard. It really isn't. Not, you, you find them. Yeah. And if you don't, ask someone and they'll tell you. You know, it's not, it's not that hard. But, but equally, I've often found that, that difficult is because sometimes women leaders find it harder to articulate what they want and what and the opportunity particularly in the area of wanting opportunities because um ambition isn't always seen as feminine so um it's been great to gather leaders together for those reasons to help process things like that um and some of your previous books have been for leaders um for women 
but your new book, The Dream of You, is very much a personal story. You, you do divulge a lot of detail about your own life. Why did you think now was the time to do that? It's funny, you know, because I didn't actually realise quite how much I'd said about myself until later. I, I, I was a bit slow on this. <laughs> a bit slow. And I thought, oh dear, it's there. And I, I mean, I think, again, because it was the nature of the topic, because it, it's a lot to do with framing how we frame our identity and how our identity gets to where we are. I asked the question, who were you before anybody told you who you were supposed to be? And um, it always gives people pause, men and women of every ethnicity that I've had this conversation with. It always gives us pause because we know there are so many internal and external factors that have shaped us. And it felt weird to write about that without talking about my own life. Yeah. In that, I think when you're going in tender places, and I, it's something I've learned and continue to learn as a leader, when you're wanting people to go to tender places, you've got to be willing to model that in some way and be transparent in some way and vulnerable in some way and so it felt important to do the same and I, and I think also because otherwise it's really or at least I found it very easy in the past to make platitudes of things of identity and say well my identity is in Christ and it's like that's great and it's true it absolutely is it's just that if you don't say how you got there no one no one I, I remember people saying things like that's great information but I don't know what that means I don't know what that means in, pra in practice and maybe not being from an entirely church background is help me ask more questions on things like that you talk about your childhood a lot you talk about the fact that you are um the child of nigerian immigrants in the uk but you also talk about the fact that you were placed in foster care and you're placed into a white family um what sort of effect do you think that had on your identity at an early age well yeah my foster mother was very normal and she <laughs> and she was very good I mean I'm so grateful to the Lord for her and she was very good in terms of she, she never asked me to assimilate she always celebrated our culture and so she I didn't have to fit in she learned how to do my hair she learned what my skin needed she learned all those things and never made it weird um, which was great I think it was probably weird to some of the neighborhood <laughs> Um, that was weird and so I think the impact it had on the identity wasn't so much being with a white family but how people reacted to me be, me and my brother right. being, in a, being with a white family because it was the 70s and racism was, was more explicit it's not that it's gone away um, in fact it seems to be making a wonderful comeback but um, at that point it was real explicit so I think the impact on my identity was it was very clear we belonged in terms of as family and as community we didn't belong in terms of everybody knew something was different about us and so that was always pointed out sometimes out of curiosity sometimes aggressively sometimes negatively and those things definitely impacted my identity. What about the the moment where you traveled back to London for what you thought was a Christmas visit and then you say and then you realize you were there for good I mean, mm -hmm. How did that make you feel um, about your identity? You know, to be honest, I mean, I mean, and it's typical, isn't it? At the time, it was just like, I think the best way to describe it is happy, sad, because your family's your family, but your family's your family, and they were all my family. Yeah. And that wasn't a disconnect for me because I've never had a nuclear family. I, Nigerians don't do nuclear. We do extended. So yeah. it's always been very natural to have an extended family. And it wasn't like this dramatic kind of, oh, my gosh, I've been taken from these people. It was like, I'm with my family. But what about the rest of my family? Because, you know, because you're five. And it, it definitely it, it probably wasn't until I was way older that I actually thought of the ramifications of how how easy it was for me to detach from relationships. <laughs> now, that that definitely. But at the time, it was just, it was weird and didn't make sense and and great and difficult and painful and uh, it, confusing all at the same time. 
Well, it's interesting what you say about um, your foster mother really embracing um, all the different things from your heritage because that obviously helped you. You do talk about that talk that your aunt oh, gave yeah. you, um, which I wanted to bring up where, with the fact that because you were black and a woman that you'd have so much more to contend with. And what kind of effect did that have on you? Now, the irony is I think that's probably had the biggest impact, the biggest impact. It was in 80, it was 81, so it was just around the time. There were riots in Brixton, which is about three miles from where I, where I lived, and you'd see things on the news which were your neighbourhood, which weren't the na- – but it wasn't described in the way that you knew, and people describing places and people groups in ways that, that weren't familiar to the people you knew and what we did when we were in Brixton on a Saturday in the market and stuff. And I remember at the time when my aunt – and my aunt said it that time, but I mean, we had that talk repeatedly through my childhood, repeatedly. It was, it was like a, just a very, very common conversation. And I don't know many people of color who haven't had the talk, to be honest. I think I've met one in my life. And it was very much a sense of this is what, this is what it takes to survive in this world. This is what it takes to um, overcome the stereotypes. This is what it, what it takes to overcome the systemic and habitual um, stereotypes on account of gender and accounts of your race. And I think what it did was make me think, well, if I want to succeed, I mean, the talk was, Joe, to make it, you're going to have to be at least twice as good. And so it made me, it, it was the, the tools to fight with in many ways that to be twice as good was the only way through, or at least to try to be twice as good. And it wasn't that I was competing to be better than anybody else in, in many levels. I was competing to not get left behind. And so there was a fundamental difference hmm. for me in that I wasn't trying to put anybody else down because I was already down. <laughs> I was already bottom of the rung. And and the thing is, it, was, it wasn't just that the talk shaped my identity. It was that it was reinforced on a regular basis in the world in which I lived. You know, it was reinforced in the ways that we were spoken to. It was reinforced in the way that we were followed around stores. It was it was reinforced in certain things that you'd see in the popular culture um, about black people or about women, about expectations of women and things. That um, the expectation of Africans, you know, the amount of jokes that went around about African Nigerian princes who were doing scams and all these other sorts of things, and the the reinforcement of all of those things made you think, well. Okay, then what does it take to get taken seriously for simply who you are, um, for not, to not be tolerated, but celebrated for who you are to, and, and all of those things. And so I think it certainly made me driven. I think I was probably already driven. It just gave me a lot to be driven about and because it's, it's something that's in the culture around you. So on one level, you can heal up all you want. The world is, and the world hasn't changed. The world yeah. hasn't changed. And so you have to keep on coming back to the Lord about how you process that. You um you said you had difficulties accepting God as your father, and that caused you to mm. kind of just work twice as hard for acceptance, etc. So you obviously have got all these different factors. So mm-hmm. um, how did you come to the place of really truly understanding Him as your father? Then, yeah, I mean, I think the drivenness was just the modus operandi at that point. If, I guess the attitude was, if you want anything, that's what it takes. And I mean, on in terms of coming to the understanding, I would say God came to me. I. <laughs> I didn't get there. I wasn't, I was very clueless. And um, it was years, I mean, I, it was 1990, it was in at St. Mark's Church in Kennington. And um, someone had given a prophetic word, basically, about somebody um, not knowing who their father was. And it just undid me. Yeah, I mean, I was there to hit on a guy, to be blunt. But <laughs> but, but it, un, it undid me because, not that it was a prophetic word, completely used to that. That had been my church experience anyway. It was that God was talking to me and that he saw fit in amongst a few hundred people to highlight my life. And it 
and it wasn't it wasn't that even I felt special I felt known and um I felt known and seen and I think I felt a lot of life uh, either through my own personal circumstances or the circumstances of the culture not being seen for who I was and therefore not being valued yeah. and it was this moment where the king of kings said I see you he said I see you I see your story I see your pain I see your history I see your grief and I see how you've gotten on with it and it matters to me it matters to me that you've been through this and it, it just undid so much junk and, and, but even after that, there's been an ongoing process of getting to know God as my father for years. It took years because those things that they didn't arrive immediately. So they don't go immediately. You know, it's like change from glory to glory and all that stuff. It yeah. was God's been so gracious to me. But I think on that one, I didn't do it. He, 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 he's just been very persistent in helping me understand. Very persistent. Um, and you've already talked about this like a little bit earlier um, about the fact that it's only in Christ that we find out who we truly are but actually you are very honest in your book and you say quite a lot of us haven't found ourselves in Jesus and why do you think that is? I think because sometimes although we sing and pray and read about Jesus reaching to us I think sometimes our default position is what we do to reach to him and so we we forget that we can draw near to God with full assurance of faith and find mercy and grace it's like okay God here I am for you I'm going to present my faith to you. I'm going to perform my faith for you. And I think that's what happens. And I think some of us um, forget that that being in Christ is, is part of this covenant exchange where he takes on our junk. Maybe we're embarrassed or ashamed of our junk. So it's like, I'll clean it up. You don't have to, you don't worry about it, Jesus. I'll clean up and then I'll come to you yeah. <laughs> and come to you. And when I'm better and when I'm a bit healthier and uh, and I prayed more recently, then we can talk. Kind of. And and it's amazing how easy it is to slip back into those into those old groups. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think sometimes it's actually we don't want to be open about our junk because it's really mm. it can be really costly. You talk about that too. Um, you're totally yeah. you're very honest about the process and say yes. We experience relief and freedom, but actually sometimes when God's doing a deep work, it really hurts. It's really painful. And sometimes we actually mm. just want to hide away and comfort ourselves rather than facing that. So how did totally. you um, learn to push through in those moments where you had that choice of do I do this or do I just hide and comfort myself again? Yeah, I mean, I think pain's a, pain's a great teacher one way or another. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's the healing pain of being vulnerable or the damage. And I, I think I learned, I, I think there are a couple of things. I think I learned maybe the first time God met me. That probably that time when, I, when he revealed himself as father, I just thought, I'm going to take a chance on God on some of this stuff. You know, I'm going to take a chance on him. I'm going to take a chance on he, I mean, it sounds, it, it does sound like arrogant posturing saying that because it's God and everything, but <laughs> there's no point lying to you. Um, I, and I was like, God, I'm going to see if you can do something with this. And as I've seen him move, it's helped me trust him with the other things. And it's helped me recognize, you know, that his power, you know, those words where it says about his power being made perfect in our weakness came alive in a particular way. I know it speaks to a deliberate context, but in the sense of that weakness and vulnerability and God meeting me there, I've seen him do that. I've seen him take those horrible things and turn them around. So when I'm resistant, I look and think I could stay where I am or I could choose. Yes, the, the picking up my cross and denying myself and admitting my junk, but following Jesus somewhere and seeing what he can do. And um, I think for those of us who are standing on the precipice of this stuff, I would just say, you know, you've got to take a risk on him. It is vulnerable, but I don't want to buy into the lies. 
that tears are weak because that's foolishness. I don't want to buy into the lie that vulnerability is a sign of you being um, weirdly damaged. Of course I'm damaged. I've lived life like we all have. I don't want to buy into the lies that me just covering up all my junk is the way to cope when actually he gives us pathways to life. And sometimes those pathways take me, take me to, have taken me to an altar. And sometimes those pathways have taken me to an altar, which also had a, a doctor's office involved. And, I, and I, I just don't need to be ashamed of that. I just want to be free. Who cares what people think when you, when you're free, you care less, I've, I've noticed. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we can have a conversation about whether I'm a mess for seeing the counselor, or we can just celebrate the fact that I'm free. And I, I, don't, I like freedom. Freedom tastes way better. Than the other stuff so you talk about walking away from experiences that named you or labeled you mm-hmm. but walking yeah. away with a limp like Jacob so you were it made you aware of your weaknesses and your vulnerability and I mean you've just talked about vulnerability there um that created dependence on God for you but so many of us and this is something that I found um over the years we're afraid to be vulnerable with one another yeah. but that means not only do we miss out on journeying together more deeply, but we miss out on that intimacy with God. So why do you think we we choose um, protection of ourselves over vulnerability? I mean, who wants to go first? Do you know what I mean? Who wants to go first and say, hey, I'm still working through an eating disorder. Hey, do you know what I mean? Who wants to go first and say, hey, I cut myself today? Or, hey, I'm, I've lost my job and I'm, and it's my fault. And all our reasons are very, very human and very, very understandable. And, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, we have been vulnerable and it's been taken for granted or it's been taken advantage of or abused in some way. And so we protect ourselves because we got hurt. And it's hard that the same instruments of hurt in, as in human beings can also be the instruments of our healing, other human beings, or even the same one. And and so it's, I think it just is really risky territory to dare to go there. But I also feel like, you know, our, our God in his very nature is relational. Um, Jesus, who modeled a perfect life, was relational and vulnerable with the people around him when he, when he weeps before them and he asked them to stay with him a while in Gethsemane and stuff. So he models for us a way to live it but it is costly it really it really is and again I I don't know how we do any of these things without the risk that it could go awry so just to go back to your own journey um and obviously we've kind of left that where you were still growing up in um the UK at this point but obviously you got married and there was a a moment where you and your husband decided to move to America. Um, And so you share about that wilderness moment. So you've moved from England to Arizona and it it was a real wilderness. It was not what you were expecting at all. At all. Um, So the wilderness is often the purpose behind that is testing our sense of identity and purpose and exposing the state of our hearts. You also mentioned the valley that you Um, found yourself lamenting deeply within so what did you learn about yourself in both the wilderness and the valley times gosh you know the wilderness was oh man it was hard and it was long I mean it was long it was probably about a decade I learned a lot about the Lord I learned that he was there and he was faithful and he was kind I think in many ways I felt sometimes I was on the outside looking at myself on like on the outside looking in I think with the with the wilderness, it, it it stripped things away, but it actually made it quite simple again. You know what I mean? It made it quite simple to when I was a kid in this small church that no one heard of or cared about. And I had the Lord and he was moving by the power of his spirit. And I had a Bible and that was, and I had some friends and we were working out imperfectly and God was doing stuff. And I was reminded of that. I I was surprised how much I drew on that period of my life. 
I thought I would draw on the big church, big experience as I'd had when I was in Sheffield and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't. I drew on the times when I was small and vulnerable and lonely in those times. Um, and I realized that no, whether I think I did learn that whether times were good or bad, I know how to dig for a well. Do you know what I mean? I know how to dig for water in tough times. I realized afresh the importance of praying. I, I think it did hit home actually how key it is to deal with the stuff in your life again. And that that's um, one of my friends describes it as it's like pulling off the layers of an onion and it's like there was a whole other layer. And some things creep up imperceptibly. You don't realize they're what you want. Like, you know, when I moved to the States, I mean, I felt called to the States. I felt called to the States since I was 14 years old. I It, it was a long-term thing, but there was my calling which had to fall off and what God was actually asking of me. You know what I mean? I didn't know the expectations that I'd placed on things until they weren't there, <laughs> until they weren't met in any way whatsoever. And um, I think the wilderness has a way of doing that for you. Things that you just thought they would, that would be the way you thought they would be. And then you'll realize God never actually said that and he never promised that. And, you know, the word promises all kinds of stuff without it being that. <laughs> um, I think that in terms of the grief time, Oh my gosh. I mean, it was devastating. It was just, just devastating. And it's, you know, it, I probably even wasn't even able to really reflect on it for about five years after because it, um, in losing my foster mother and my father in such a short space of time, like five weeks apart, it was just like boom, numb. And I think looking back, I realized how much the Lord carried me. You know what I mean? He just held me. And there's a bit in the Bible, like, oh, forgive me, I can't remember where it was. I think it's in one of the one of Peter's letters and it talks about being kept by the power of God and I think I learned those things about being kept by the power of God and 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 also that those things you know the wilderness and the valley aren't all terrible either you know I had my kids in that time it was a wonderful time that Arizona is this arid dry place that if you don't drink water fast you do you, it does mess you up but it's also this beautiful place a big bright blue skies and amazing sunsets valleys are desperate places but they're really intimate with God as well and so whilst they kind of seared my soul in a way and I'm not the kind of person who said I wouldn't change them for the world I totally would change <laughs> I totally would change them I would if I could avoid them um particularly the valley I'd have the people back in a shot I'd change it but equally I just I mean I think I rem I was reminded that God is still here he's still here he's never left he's never gonna leave and he's never gonna forsake me and it was never it was never about a job or a role or all those sorts of things it wasn't even about a country it was about how faithful and good he was and he still is so now you're obviously a very regular speaker, an author, a leadership coach. How did you get to the point of embracing um, this part of your life where your calling is now? Did somebody speak that into you and call it out of you? Or was it something that you very much felt for years was inside you that God had very definitely told you about? And so you stepped into it. How did that actually come about? Oh, um, probably bits of both. You know, I think some of it... <laughs> I do feel clear. I do feel I'm often the last to know these things. You know, um, like on the leadership stuff, I look back and I realize that even since I was at school, people were putting me in positions of leadership. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. OK, yeah, that's right. And I, I always considered it something that I did or but I didn't think about it in a calling sense. But there were times when some, sometimes just people's encouragements were really were really key. I remember when I was in when in my twenties when I was at St Thomas's and the team were just so encouraging, and they gave me opportunities and they created opportunities for me. Um, and then kind of let me 
in them <laughs> and, and stuff. I think that was really affirming. And sometimes when I'd step out and try something and just see what God did, and I'm like, oh, we need to talk about what you just did there, Lord. Do you want me, are we, is this a thing that we're going to do? Is this, is this kind of you and me? Is this how we roll? I'll do that. Um, and then, you know, I, actually, now I think about it, there was, at the end of that valley, in that, uh, that year when, I, when, my, when two of my parents passed, there was a moment near the end of that year and I can't remember who, um, it might have been a conversation me and my husband had, there was a common, but there was something about that year at the end of it that I came out thinking, okay, I need to go for this now. And I don't know what it was. I, there, I think there was something about a generation having passed and me recognizing, I mean, it felt very young to lose people. I was, I was 34 when, when um, they died, but there was something in that era as well that was a I, I, I can't even describe what it was, but it, it, there was a moment in that year, even in the valley, of standing up again meant I was going to take hold of all that God had um, taken hold of for me. And, I, and I, to be honest, I think I ask him regularly, <laughs> I'm like, what, what are we doing? What are, what are we doing, Lord? And um, trying to respond to the world around me because, you know, there have been some chapters of my life where I'm doing stuff, but the emphasis is very different. And this just seems to be the emphasis right now. I'll tell you what, it, what uh, the other key thing was. I grew up a Methodist. Uh, well, I say Methodist. It was me- Methodist with a splash of vineyard, I think would be the accurate. <laughs> um, but we used to do the Methodist covenant prayer at the start of every year. And there's this thing about, um, I'm no longer my own, but yours. Rank me with whom you will. Put me. I'm getting this wrong. Put me to what you want. And it says, let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Um, I'm raised up for you, brought low for you. Forgive me, Methodist, because I've completely butchered all of that. But you know what I'm saying. And, um, but there was this sense of this year is yours do what you want with me in it. And I feel I I come back to that. Right now, it seems to be um, that raising up leaders, investing in leaders, particularly um, those who are underrepresented, which often leads me towards women and always leads me towards people of color, seems to be the the, the primary thing that gets me going. Not the exclusive thing, but the thing in this chapter of my life feels right to do. But hey, there'll be another chapter and he'll ask for something else. It's never quite what I think, but yeah, it always feels like I wondered what took me so long to work it out. So the, the subtitle of your book is um, Let Go of Broken Identities and Live the Life that You Were Made For. So um, and just kind of wrapping this up, what would you want to say to readers or listeners about how they can embrace the life that they were made for? Um, I think the first thing I'd say is it's not too late for a new beginning. This is not for you in your 20s. This is, I was just hearing the story of a woman in her 70s um, just last week who said that it's given her a, a fresh lease on how she perceives a life, which is really humbling and wonderful to, to hear. I would say um, we're not too far from the grace of God. We're not too far. It's not too late. It's not, you're not too far gone. You're not too lost. It's not too hard for him. Obviously it feels way too hard for us, but it's not too hard for him. And it's worth doing. We have been given this precious gift of life. He came that we might have life and have it to the full. Let's have the life he has for us rather than the one that life has told us we have to have. And it is painful and it is challenging and it may mean you see a therapist. You know, do you know what I mean? it might. It might mean part of your journey means you need to go to a doctor and say, I have been in a weird place for years. Could you help me out here? It may mean all of those things, but underneath of the everlasting arms and um, he'll lead you to, to freedom, um, lead you into purpose. And I think we need that right now. Our key relationships need that right now. Our world needs that right now. Uh, I'd say choose redemption. Choose redemption. Everyone's favourite satirist Adrian Plass pens a new sacred diary for the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine with his unique take on the phenomenon of the Christian festival. 
Plus, we ask, how should believers respond to identity politics? Is smoking the cardinal sin it's often made out to be? Hugh Ross tells how astrophysics brought him face-to-face with the creator. And we bring you a special report on the megachurch movement in the USA, going behind the scenes of six of America's biggest churches. All that plus much more. Ask for your free edition at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. It's the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. And there you will find more interviews, features, news, columnists and more, all from a Christian perspective. But today here on The Profile, this is the show where we like to dig into a person's life, faith and testimony. I'm delighted to say that I'm speaking to Tom Reed. Tom is an international singer-songwriter and producer based in Oxford, UK. He's written and collaborated with many Western and Asian artists, as well as performing and releasing his own music. He was previously based in Hong Kong, but now resides in Oxford. And his latest project is titled Lament. And he joins me now in the studio. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We always like to start off here on the profile by asking about a person's early life. Tell me a bit about life growing up for you. Well, I was born in the UK. I don't remember too much up until the age of six, which is when I moved to Hong Kong. And that's kind of like where my memories begin. So my dad um, is an engineer and got transferred over to Hong Kong. Um, and this was before 97. So this is when Hong Kong was still a British colony. And um, yeah, grew up there, um, had an amazing experience, just, you know, people from all over the world kind of living in this crazy city. And um, yeah, lived there for most of my life, actually. Um, Met my wife there, have two kids that were born there. And then, um, yeah, now living here, obviously. And that was all a Christian background, was it? Yeah, so my parents, um, uh, you know, I was raised in a Christian household and um, always went to church. um, And a lot of people, when they found out I grew up in Hong Kong, presumed that we moved there as missionaries, but actually we didn't. My dad's an engineer, um, but he did end up pastoring a church, and and that's I ended up working for that church as well, yeah, for a number of years. And today you will do Christian music and you'll do stuff that isn't explicitly Christian. Has has that kind of always been where you've sat? You've wanted to do both and not get pigeonholed into one or the other? Yeah, I I think um, I've never really sat comfortably in boxes. I want to make music that everyone can listen to, not just only a certain person of a certain type of faith or belief or whatever. So I had my foot in one side and the other side for, mm. for as long as I can really remember. Although I did have a quite a long period of really heavily involved in like church music and worship music and and um producing that you know church albums and things like that does that play in a little bit with your background in hong kong you talk about it being sort of a diverse mix mixed place uh, has that kind of fed into your music in any way and wanting to do lots of different things and as you say not be boxed in i think it probably does um you know when you because there's not one overriding culture when you grow up in perhaps somewhere where there is a strong culture from that place, perhaps it's easier to fit into something. Whereas mm. I think I'm probably what you'd describe as a third culture kid. I think identity is always a bit of a struggle. It's like, 
am I British? Am I international? Am I, what part of me is Hong Kong? You know, so <laughs> according to the bio on your website, you're international. Is yeah, the word that you've used. Yeah, I think that probably best ex- explains it because although you know, obviously I am British and I live here now, I still feel like there's a huge part of my identity um, from living overseas and being raised in a in a city where you know there were people literally from all over the world mm. that that I caught some of my best friends yeah. and so you do it does influence you and you do pull from from different you know different cultures and things yeah. like that tell me a little bit about the the hong kong church uh, both sort of capital c church what what the general cross nomination uh, picture is like in hong kong and also about your own specific church background what what, what could we relate to as as predominantly british people um that's kind of the same in hong kong and what's completely different um, I think that there's quite a lot of similarities, to be honest. Um, in, if From my background, I was part of an international church, um, so it wasn't a, don- a denominational church. Um, but I'd say it was sort of like a hybrid of, uh, let's say, HDB and Hillsong. Mm-hmm. You know, if you kind of mix those two things together, a little bit of vineyard in there maybe as well. Um, and I think that that was quite a beautiful thing, actually, because... Um, I like to think that you pull perhaps the best of each of those yeah. um, into into what you're doing as a church. Um, but then, and I think a lot of international churches would probably fit in that mold. There's not strong denominational ties with a lot of the international churches simply because people come from so many different backgrounds and denominations that it's kind of like what I said before, it's hard to have one overriding um, identity or denomination and mm. uh, so it's just easier to say we're a multi-denominational church and presumably hong kong is is a completely different picture to china because when people hear china they think the persecuted church the underground church real hardship presumably it's a different picture in hong kong yeah i mean traditionally hong kong has had um freedom of religion freedom of practice religion and there's been no restrictions so that's carried on over since it was under british rule and it's been, you know, widely respected in the culture. I do think that um, in recent times, from what I can gather, that um, there is some more influence from the mainland China coming in. Um, and certainly, if not directly impacting on church, indirectly having an influence. Um, so, yeah, that's mm. one, one to watch out for. So tell me what brought you back to the UK? Um Long story short, I had worked as a worship director for 12 years and uh, kind of felt like it would be good to take a year off, take a sabbatical, um, go somewhere different and just have a year of break from ministry or at least um, from ministry of the role I was doing. So we decided to come to the UK um, for a year and really enjoyed that year and have ended up being here for five years <laughs> the the one year turned into five exactly yeah it wasn't something we planned we genuinely thought it would be one year but i suppose god had other yeah. plans for us was that an easy transition adjustment i think it was because we only thought it was going to be one year so when we were leaving we didn't have a, a particularly big emotional um Goodbye. response yeah because yeah. it wasn't like oh we're never coming back we're leaving for good so it, it made leaving quite easy. So, yeah, it wasn't too hard, although, you know, we certainly do miss a lot of our life back in Hong Kong. What are the big things you miss, apart from people? Um, hot weather, which is an obvious one. I think, you know, definitely when you grow up somewhere, you have just that strong community of people that you've known for a long time. 
and that's so hard to replace you know i think it's one of those vital things and so we've we've definitely missed that all our family live there as well but i think even just in church you know i was i was on leadership of my church and had been involved sort of from its inception and um i definitely think feel like in a way coming to the uk was almost like starting over again mm. Um, where no one really knows you or what you do or who you yeah. are. People talk about this a lot. When you when you move churches, often there is no kind of system where the other church can kind of vouch for you almost. Yeah, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? No, Here's no his can, credentials. Yeah. So, no, totally. You and, just start brand new with a brand new group of people who don't know your abilities, your giftings, yeah. your experience. Yeah, I think it's uh, in many ways, particularly if you were quite heavily involved in doing something or leading something, it could be quite a humbling experience, you know, because as you say, like, no one knows or particularly cares what you what you did before. Um, and so I think overall that's been a, a good process for me. I want to talk about your new project. Um, you've written many songs. Um, as I say, both those people may know from the kind of the, the worship world and those with other artists. You're working with other artists, uh, producing, recording music. But your latest solo project is called Lament. Yeah. Why is it called Lament? I think it's a topic that's been on my heart and in my thoughts for a while. Um, I think for a few years I've been raising the question of why the church struggles so much with lament, um, why we don't really see it in our worship. Uh, you know, I'd written these songs that kind of all fit in that that kind of idea. And so I thought, well, why don't I just put my money where my mouth is and actually just title the project Lament, you know, and, and really just go for it. Was this born out of any personal experience for yourself? Yeah, I think um, I think over the last five years there's been a, a, a number of things. I mean, even the process of, like I've just mentioned, of leaving Hong Kong and leaving our safety. Um, I think leaving my role in the church that I had, um, I've sort of de- been deconstructing my faith a little bit and um, my background. and So I think there was an, a little bit of lament going through that as well as well as um, my mum, who struggled for a few years with dementia and Alzheimer's, passed away two years ago. So obviously um, there was the grieving process there, and that's fed into some of these songs. And I think lastly, I've had a sort of a lifelong struggle with anxiety and and just that mental health issues. And um, I think that that's also fed into these songs and and my worship because it can be hard times when you're in worship settings and you you're not really able to relate to much of the words Mm. that are up on the screens that you're supposed to sing um so i think just a combination of those things together has kind of brought me to this place where i feel like i've been able to authentically write music that means something for me um, and expresses kind of how i feel I've heard a lot of people talk along similar lines about the kind of lack of lamenting that happens in our corporate worship. I remember even Bono, the lead singer of U2, said, worship leaders, why don't you write a song about your bad marriage or write a song about something that isn't going so well in your life and kind of bring that to God in a, in a worship sense. So you hear people, even even people like Bono talking about this, mm. and yet you look at the songs that are being written and being sung, and there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of change. So what's happened there? Because it's not like people aren't pointing this out. And yet mm. at some level, the well-known worship leaders who write songs don't appear to be writing about this. Mm. I mean, I think there's so many reasons, but probably the main reason is it's it's just not attractive to, um, you know, I'll be honest, like it's much easier to write a song that makes people feel good um, rather than a song that makes people perhaps question or 
um, have to think about hard things. That doesn't mean that one is any better than the other or of more benefit or less benefit. It's just it's a lot easier to write songs. And most um, church leaders that I've ever spoken to are really quite probably quite afraid of the idea of lament because they think that um, it's going to be depressing, you know, and... Um, quite rightly they don't want people I suppose to come to church and think like what a depressing place you know um, but I think that all comes down to the misunderstanding of what lament actually is and, and what it means and what it what it could be and should be in a church context. Yeah you can understand that because like you say people don't go to church to be depressed so so what is the answer to that how do you write a song about laments that doesn't just depress people or are you saying there is a case for depressing moments in a church i think depressing is the wrong word i think that's the misconception this idea that lament is somehow going to make everyone feel bad and i think it couldn't be further from the truth actually for me what lament means is it really just means being honest and being real um and allowing our worship to talk about issues that are real and honest You know, I think that when we do that and we allow for that, for the most part, people appreciate that. Just if you look in, um, if you take the, you know, counselling or something like that or or the grieving process, the grieving process is something that is vital in order to allow humans to move on with their lives. And, um, you know, if you, it's known that if you sort of ignore the grieving process or like try to avoid it, Mm. it can lead later on to other problems and and I think laments the same thing. It's it's just and the idea that we we shouldn't avoid the hard things in mm. our lives. We shouldn't avoid um, the, the hard questions, or um, we really should just acknowledge that okay, things aren't great right now. Um, it doesn't mean that they're going to be that way forever. But to be real, I need to say um, I'm just I'm struggling right now, and I think that. Um, It is a really hard thing to do. It's a tricky thing to do corporately Mm -hmm. because um, not everyone's going to be feeling that way. And I think that's always the big argument that comes out. Well, why do we need to talk about it if not everyone's feeling that way? But obviously when you flip the question on on its head and say, well, what what about the people who aren't feeling happy and we're singing songs about being happy and victorious, you know, but that seems to be okay because um, we want to make people feel good. And I think... To do that, you're doing a disservice to the process of lament, which actually is allowing people to acknowledge so that they can move on, so mm. that they can reach that place of hope, so that they can reach that place where healing begins in their life. I mentioned a moment ago that, that worship leaders don't tend to write songs like this. Now, there are noticeable exceptions. I can think of the Tim Hughes song, I've Had Questions Without Answers. Mm. But, you know, a lot of those songs, they do take you then to a place of praise and mm. they take you to a place of I will still trust you, I will still love you. Mm. Is that the kind of corporate lament where actually it takes you on a journey and it doesn't it doesn't just lament, but it brings you to a place of praising in the in the pain? Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where we, that's how we most often see um, that's the closest thing we see to lament in in our worship that we have. You know, you have songs like "Blessed Be Your Name," for example, that um, that do talk about it. But I think one of the things that um, perhaps we always try to, we always tend to do, which I'm not sure is a good thing, is we like to wrap things up nicely. So it's like it's okay to say this is hard, but as long as we say, you know, the good thing. And I think true lament, it's like this thing where you know when. When someone's grieving, or, uh, and it's easy to always use grieving examples, I think it's most helpful. Probably one of the least helpful things to say to someone grieving is, 
oh well god god has a reason or god you know there's yeah. a reason god has a plan or even if that's the truth it's not necessarily helpful, not helpful to the, the person in that moment yeah. and i think laments the same i don't think it's about taking people to this dark place and leaving them there i think it's acknowledgement if you acknowledge i think you know i always try if you look at the songs on the cp i do feel like it's a hopeful ep at the end of the day you know i don't feel like it's depressing or um it leaves people going, oh, you know, what's the point? Um, I think that the, the, the real idea of lament is that there is hope and it's okay. Like for me, I think that all of my lament is, is allowing myself to say, you know, God, this is really hard and I don't understand. And where are you? But the point is I'm still saying it to God. I haven't like walked away or I haven't detached myself I'm, it's my cry to God. And I think that's the powerful thing, is that we're actually, we are coming before God. And that's the worship, you know, is uh, that's what God asks us to do in the scriptures, bring before him mm. our lament and, you know, our, these kind of things. And so I'd, I think that, you know, we don't necessarily need to wrap things up neatly all the time, but I do think we do need to s- say, I'm going to trust you. Mm. You know, it's like the answer's not there yet. But I still I'm going to try and trust you. Are you hoping some of the, the songs on this EP, Laments, will find their way into congregational worship? I didn't write the songs with that in mind. I just tried to write the, the most truest songs and um, genuine expression that I could. Obviously, if there are songs that, um, that churches feel like would benefit them, then I'd love that. Um, and, you know, we have done some things like we're doing some acoustic versions of the songs um, and putting the chord charts up mm. and um, making the sort of tracks available to people so they can use them in their church worship. But um, it's not like my, it's not what I was really shooting for. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. You used um, a really interesting phrase a moment ago. You talked about you've been deconstructing your faith. Mm. And I hear um, typically actually younger people use this phrase quite a lot at the moment. Um, mm. there, there seems to be this idea of, of deconstructing, taking everything apart, looking at it all, and then maybe putting it back together, but in a slightly different way to how it was before, mm. which I know many people will be thinking that sounds a bit vague. So do you want to talk a bit more about what that actually means for you? What does deconstructing your faith look like? Yeah, I think, I mean, I grew up in an evangelical church. Um, and I think that there's obviously been, there's so many things I'm grateful for um, and so many things that have shaped my faith, which... Um, you know, have stayed with me. But I think perhaps one of the things that um, has not been so beneficial is this sort of idea in evangelical Christianity that everything is just completely sure, like assured, and there's no doubt, there's no questions. It's like, you know, the Bible is 100% everything it says it is, and you have to take it at its face value. And and I think that that's how I kind of was was raised. That's kind of the Christianity that I was raised in. Anything of the world is bad. You know, I remember um, my youth pastor taking me up to taking all my secular CDs and we went up to the roof and we snapped them and broke them and like burned oh. them because they were all evil, you know. And um, I think that that kind of uh, the problem with that kind of, um, I would say, fundamentalist almost viewpoint is that when you get to the age that I'm at now in the 30s, I look back and I think, you know what? I'm not so sure anymore. Like, I still believe in God, but I'm not I'm not so sure on, like, all these things that I thought were, like, 
absolutes, you know. And so I think deconstructing is is allowing yourself to go back and look at perhaps some of the things that you were taught and go, oh, what do I think about that? And you might come out the other end and go, ah, yeah, I believe that. Or you might come out the other end and go, I'm not sure if that's what I believe or not. But it's kind of the idea that that you're you're allowing yourself to to ask more questions and to look back on perhaps some of the things you were taught in in youth group, and and see actually are they where you mm. stand now? You um you mentioned that that part of this new project is um came about through your own mental health problems with anxiety. Uh, where's the sort of line between that and and faith? Because I've spoken to people before who've said actually the kind of church attitude towards this mental health problem has been really really awful Mm. um you know you even hear stories of people saying well someone tried to cast a demon out of me because i had depression and those sorts of things i mean i don't know if that's your experience but but what has been your experience with having mental health difficulties and how that relates to your faith and your church background and i think this well that's great because that's a perfect example of one of the areas of faith that i've deconstructed because when i was growing up um i was told so many times that that was all you know anything that was depression or anxiety um, was all demonic and needed to just be prayed away, you know. And so I can't tell you the number of times that I've prayed for God to remove my anxiety disorder and and stop me having panic attacks. And um, you know, you just get to a point where it's like, well, clearly that's not that prayer is not being answered. I think it's a mis just a misunderstanding of um, you know, kind of just almost like how how it works, you know, and that. Um, we we can't just pray every bad thing away. Mm. And I think with mental health especially, yeah, the church hasn't been great in acknowledging that um, we actually do need help that's not just spiritual help, but we actually need professional help in this area and being okay. So this idea that, you know, you're somehow, it's somehow um, you don't have enough faith if you, if you rely on medication or or need to have medication or counseling or whatever i think those attitudes have been so dangerous in the past and it's great that now we're at a place in the church where we're actually saying no they work hand in hand you know and it's not one or the other but um sure sure pray pray into those areas and have people pray for you but at the same time get get the help that you need you know mm. it seems like attitudes have changed or are changing in that respect i mean i'm sure there used to be attitudes around um physical healing in other ways like if you had a bad leg that some people might want to attribute that immediately to a dark spiritual realm mm. whereas now most people won't and they will mm. talk about well you can go to the doctor and have prayer mm. are we now moving into a time where most christians will say it, you know your mental health is the same as your outward physical health in other other areas it can be prayer it can be a doctor and it, and it can be a combination yeah i would hope so i think and it's not just the church to be fair i think this is a uh happening across society where we are now gaining a a better understanding of of mental health issues um and that can only be a good thing because i think um people have suffered for so long feeling like um you know there's something wrong with them Mm. and not being able to or not feeling comfortable getting the help that they need so i think it's great that we're starting to see that but obviously there's still a ways that Mm. we can go as well you're now uh, based at st aldate's church in oxford have been for the last few years so tell me about how that came about and what you're involved in there um well aldate's is my local church and um one of the other areas where i was deconstructing my faith 
um, just this idea of um, one of the things that troubled me slightly about um, modern evangelical church, um, particularly with mega churches and things like this, is the kind of like the grounding, I suppose, of perhaps, um, you know, one of the things that I suppose attracted me to the Anglican church is the history of the Anglican church um, and the tradition of it and the practices that have been practiced for centuries. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really special in that. Um, that is missing from a lot of, mod- you know, when we throw out a lot of stuff in the modern church, yeah. we're actually throwing out a lot of um, tried and true practices that have sustained Christians for, you know, centuries. Um, and so I've really enjoyed being at Audates where uh, I feel like there's a good mix of tradition and modern. Um, it's an Anglican church and um, still follows some of the liturgies and obviously has this rich history dating back almost a thousand years. Um you know, I just think it's amazing when you stand in a church and you're worshipping and you look up on the wall and there's like a, a sort of plaque that that um, says, you know, John Smith worshipped here from 1647 <laughs> to, you know, yeah. 1700. You think that's incredible that mm. I'm standing in the same place worshipping the same God as people who've done the same for like hundreds of years. And I think that there's something really powerful in that. When it comes to worship leading now, how does that whole thing look different on the other side of something like deconstruction um has that has the whole worship world been part of that deconstruction yeah a little bit and i would say that this new lament ep that i've done is part of that um it's part of allowing myself to not just write songs that i think the church wants to hear but actually writing songs that i think perhaps people need to hear um even if they're not as embraced um you know so it's it's very tempting to write a song that you know is just easily going to be sung in church um, and is going to use the right Christian words and phrases that are guaranteed to get people to get their hands up in the air, you know. Um, it's very tempting to do that because it feels good and it makes everyone think you've written an amazing song. Um, and obviously, like, there are lots of amazing songs. I mean, I think my biggest thing is I just want to advocate for for more variety and a bigger, like, um, width of songs in the church um, rather than perhaps the kind of narrow ones that we have come where it's like everything is sort of quite victorious and um, kind of is driven to that sort of emotional response but I I love to see songs that really make you think you know is it a bad thing if we go away from a worship time going oh that lyric that we sung in that song what do I think about that mm. surely like that's a good thing when we're making people think harder about the things that they're, they're singing. It's not just so comfortable that they've heard a million times before. Um, so yeah, I've definitely, um, I feel like I've definitely been looking and deconstructing that kind of side of things, not to criticize anyone or anything. Um, I think that, you know, the, the song, like I said, the church needs so many different types of songs and that's yeah. what I hope to see. Uh, we said earlier, you know, you've, you've been involved in music across the board, not just in, in Christian circles. Is it difficult to make a living from music? <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think that, um, you know, people who are in the music industry, particularly artists that are trying to make a living, um, are some of the hardest working people you'll ever see. Um, it's it's not like the old days where um, people bought music. And I think particularly in the UK as well, if you're a Christian artist, it's even more difficult because generally there isn't much of a, uh, 
a sort of Christian music no. scene or industry here. No, and it's it's incredible how that's changed actually. So back in the sort of nineties, early noughties, I can remember there was a kind of scene where. Mm. Uh, churches, church youth groups often would invite Christian bands in, whether it was Delirious or the Bow No Name or the Tribe or all of these different people. And and worship leading was kind of a part of that as well. Tim mm. Hughes or whoever would turn up in your church, mm. and and that seems to have kind of gone. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. Well, I mean, I don't know either. I could hazard a guess of a few things, particularly from people that I've talked to or artists that I um, know about. A lot of um, the the talent that we would have seen in the church from before um, are now doing it outside of the church. And I think a large part of that reason is because um, they're not being as valued within the church. You know, there's, the church hasn't placed as high a value on Christian art um, as or art in general. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's functional, great. If it's leading people to Jesus, then they want it. But if it's just, you know, someone really expressing their art and being real and honest... Um, it's not as embraced, and I think that a lot of um, the, the true and really good sort of artists that are Christians are now um, doing a lot of stuff outside the church and in the mainstream um, because it's it's more readily accepted and embraced there. And I think that's definitely something that the church can look at, you know, and, and say, you know, is there a place where we can, um, you know, foster the arts and creativity more within what we do? Mm. That's a wonderful place to leave it. Tom Reed, thank you so, so much for coming in. Thanks for having me.